the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from See You at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See You at the Game website, and your host for the See You at the Game podcast. I will be joined in a moment by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we will discuss the comings and goings in the CU coaching staff, as well as the departure of two of CU's top defensive backs. We will also take this opportunity here at the end of the 2021 calendar year to talk a little bit about our favorite plays, our favorite players, and our favorite games from the 21 campaign. As we get into the offseason, if there is such a thing in college football anymore, please remember to subscribe to the podcast where you download your podcasts. We will try and come to you every other week, but may post more frequently depending on events. The best way to keep up with your buffs is to never miss a podcast, and the best way to do that is to subscribe. The CU program is entering its third season under Carl Durrell. There are going to be plenty of changes to the roster, as well as to the coaching staff. Will these changes have a positive effect on CU's bottom line? Let's find out. Okay, and we are back to wrap up 2021 with Brad Geiger coming to us from Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Hi, Brad. How were your How was your Christmas? Wonderful Christmas, mostly with family. Still dry and had been warm until today here in Highlands Ranch, but uh, December's generally been pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Always looking for sympathy. Well, when I landed the other night, it was eight below, but you know, whatever. Right. And Neil Langland from downtown Denver. How was your holiday season coming along? Uh, it was fun. I spent Christmas Day at Loveland Basin, probably the coldest place on earth that day. But the snow was fresh and the snow came out in the afternoon. I had a great day. Well, very good. Yeah, we're currently at one foot of snow above last year's December. So, uh, yeah, got a lot of shoveling going on here in southwest Montana. But uh, to wrap up the 2021 season, we last spoke about the class of 2022 recruiting class. There's been some movement in the coaching carousel or the CU coaching carousel anyway since then. There's been a one defection and then there's a couple of named coaches. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and then uh, talk a little bit about 2021 and, you know, try and end, this, end the year on a high note. So Demetrius Martin, CU's cornerback coach, defected, did the Jim Levitt, took off for the higher paying University of Oregon Ducks and uh, 
one of our better recruiters, actually the highest rated recruiter, according to 24-7 Sports, uh, on the Colorado staff. First reactions, uh, Brad, is this uh, just another lateral move or is this something that we're going to regret again? Oh, I think he's, you know, somebody that contributed to the staff and he's somebody else we have to replace. And, you know, immediately thereafter, two of the guys that he's coached left the program. So those are all concerning things. We talk a lot about how the transfer portal impacts players. Um, I think there's more mobility now among coaches as well, uh, in part perhaps because they can take some of their players with them, although that's, of course, something they would all deny doing. Yes. Um, so there are, uh, yeah, I'm not happy about it. Of course, he's not, I wouldn't say a key member of the program, but he seemed to be able to talk to kids. And the reality is this, Oregon is not a lateral transfer from CU. It's step up. Yeah. Well, Neil Martin in his press release or his statement about joining the Oregon staff said he was excited about the energy enthusiasm, experience, and expertise of the Oregon staff. So apparently wasn't uh, getting enough of those E's in Boulder, Colorado. Are you pushing the panic button with the loss of uh, CU's best recruiter or one of their best recruiters and uh, an up-and-coming cornerbacks coach? Or is this just one of 11 assistants and uh, everyone can be replaced? Anytime a program loses a coach where his players have nicknamed him meat. I think that's a loss. Uh, It indicates that his players like being around him. They like him as a person. And he obviously had great confidence because corners this year and the ones that he has recruited and that are up and coming uh, for the next year or two, probably one of the best position groups on the team in terms of raw talent. Um, I think he's going to be missed sorely. And as to his list of reasons that he left, he left off one big E, which was money. (laughs) Yeah. This salary hasn't been disclosed. He's making 300,000 in Boulder. Wouldn't be surprised if he's making five or six at the university of Oregon. So you know, you certainly can't blame somebody for making twice as much money, just like Jim Levitt went from 500000 to a million in 2016 going from CU to Oregon. But it is what it is when you are a Buff fan. You are realizing that uh, the assistant coach salary pool is not going to be one which uh, either attracts and or maintains, a, you know, a high-ranking, you know, recruiting caliber coaches. It just kind of is what it is. So as you mentioned, Brad, two of the players that entered the transfer portal recently, I think seems up to 11 or 12, none of which I believe have actually landed a power five conference school yet. Anyone's that's found the home, it's been like Tulsa, Tulane, UT San Antonio, schools like that. I think last year, the only defection to the transfer portal that ended up in a power five school was Katie Nixon that went to USC and had, I don't know, three catches or something like that for the season. So two quality candidates that might very well end up at power five schools, Christian Gonzalez 
who was arguably the best player on the CU defense, maybe the best player returning anyway on the team. And some of his stats, he was on the field for 781 plays. That was the most for any buff player, any buff defender. 54 tackles was honorable mention, all Pac-12. And then defensive back safety Mark Perry joined shortly thereafter. Second on the team in defensive plays, 761. 72 tackles, which was third on the team and led the team with three interceptions. So, Brad, when you're trying to rebuild the defense, it's already losing Nate Landman, already losing, you know, defensive lineman Mustafa Johnson, Carson Wells. You're hoping to build around the young defensive backs as the base for the defense for 2022. So, uh, the loss of Mark Perry and Christian Gonzalez with this raid is an even bigger loss than the, the loss of their coach. Yeah. <laughs> for CU right now, finding guys to coach for even the apparently less than princely sum of $300,000 a year is probably easier than replacing particularly somebody with Gonzalez's skill and his experience. You know, we signed six defensive backs in this last recruiting group. Um, we had talked that some of them appear to have the talent to play in the Pac-12. Some of them may get the chance to play in the Pac-12 come September. You know, I think Gonzalez will probably land, if not at Oregon, coincidentally, at a Power 5 school. No, this hurts. There's no doubt about that. And as you accurately pointed out in your article in the see you at the game, it also portends poorly for the future. You know, how are we going to keep talented players? Um, yes. Well, Neil, yeah, I kind of was depressed, you know, not the thing you want to have the week leading up to Christmas. So, yeah, the article Brad's referring to, I talked about CU fans getting coal in their stockings on Christmas yet again. And did you – Agree with the premise that this just cements CU status as a have-not, that even if we get good players, the reference that I think Brad was talking to is I was talking about the 2016 team, which also had great defensive backs that lived through and endured three losing seasons but didn't have the automatic transfer option and stuck around and got tired of losing and decided that they were going to win. And there was great leadership, of course, from Seth Olufau and some you know other seniors on that team. But would Witherspoon, you know, Awuzier, those types of players, would they be on the 2016 team if the transfer portal existed in 2016 as it does in 2021? Great question. I'm wondering about the two defensive backs generally, or two specifically, are they running away from something at CU or do they have something better in mind that they're running to? From that, it's like, what can CU do? What's wrong at CU that it can't retain these players? Maybe it was the departure of Martin. Maybe it's the lack of NIL. Maybe it's, so many other things, but to your question of how is that going to impact restaffing that defense and replacing a starting safety and starting corner? 
Um, we're going to be young again, like they say, and inexperienced. We're not going to be able to replace Gonzalez. He's a future NFL player. Perry was developing into a quality power five safety and extending that to linebackers. That is one area where in the last game, when some of the younger players had to play, they demonstrated some skill and some athleticism and perhaps with a little seasoning, they could be able replacements for the linebackers we're losing. But that's going to take a while, perhaps a whole season. So I think it's going to be difficult. Those are definite losses. And the defense, I think, is going to be a notch below uh, next year what it was last year. And I'm not sure what CU can do to change that. Yeah. Well, Brad, I mean, is it just time to kind of concede the point? for schools like Colorado that I use the example of the Kansas city Royals and the New York Yankees that major league baseball just has this system where you can have the greatest farm system in the world and you can develop players that other people don't see to get the diamonds in the rough and give them a good contract. They play a couple of years and when their first contract is up, they just go to the Yankees or go to the Dodgers mm-hmm. is that what college football is becoming with the transfer portal and NIL that we're just going to have Colorado being a, a feeder school for USC and Oregon that we try and find a can full of good players. And even though, you know, when we do find them, they're not going to stick around for three or four years. They're just going to say, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to get on TV. And now I'm going to go and make some NIL money and, uh, get coached on a team that's going to win some games. Yeah, I mean, is that just too pessimistic or is that the new reality? I, you know, it's to say it's too early to tell is a cop-out, but it is too early to tell. NIL is brand new. Transfer portal we'll still get used to. Every league struggles, professional, amateur, struggles with how you balance fairness to the players who have should have some ability to go where they're most valued with maintaining some sort of competitive parity so that the fans continue to want to pay attention. The hope, I guess, is that, yes, players like Christian Gonzalez are going to move on. But also the hope is that players who are stuck somewhere else playing behind linebackers at Notre Dame, for example, are going to try to find someplace they can play. I think playing time and ability to succeed is going to still play a role. Um, it's not going to be just NIL. I think some of those Texas players who you know, may get there and get their 50 grand, but are sitting fifth on the depth chart, may still look someplace else depending on their personal circumstances. It's harder. It's going to be harder on coaches. Um, as we discussed, you're going to have to recruit new players every year, and you're going to have to recruit your own players to make them stay. I tend to think the NIL is going to settle down. I think people who are paying players are going to figure out that there's not as much return on that investment as they thought. Um, not everybody has the money that Oregon has dripping from one donor. So do I have a lot of hope? No. Do I think things will shake out a little bit better than worst case scenario? Yeah, probably. 
I'd feel more optimistic if anybody, literally anybody until including four people who are on the streets was running it rather than the NCAA. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about four people on the streets running, you know, anything because the NCAA is not running anything. So, you know, they're just abdicated any sort of responsibility. Well, Neil, what do you, how would you look at it there? I, one report I posted, $579 million in NIL money um, that's just been spent this year alone on players. Is it possible for Colorado to compete by getting the Robert Barneses, the Jack Lambs to transfer in from disgruntled, you know, where the situations? And the second part of the question would be, is this, is this coaching staff Carl Durrell has been in college coaching since 2007. Is this coaching staff capable of taking advantage of the transfer portal to find those players that are stuck on depth charts and want a chance to play and can come and make a difference at the University of Colorado? Let me take the second one initially, Stu. Last year, they seemed to have good success, they being the CU coaching staff, bringing in some transfers, uh, some of which worked out, like the kid from Notre Dame and from Oklahoma. Those were very good gets. Uh, the offensive line, they were unlucky with Max Ray. I think Durrell has enough personal charisma that he can attract players. And what seems to happen is some kids bloom late. And we may be able to get some of the kids from lower levels of football that could fit in very well and play well for CU. And that brings me to the the first part of your question. It seems that what is developing here is something akin to Major League Baseball in that um, the major teams would be the top 30 or 35 in revenue that can afford to pay coaches and afford to sign players and get them hooked up with NIL opportunities. Um, Below that would be schools like CU, maybe, and some of the middle-level teams in the Pac-12 and other Power 5 conferences that will have to rely on developing players that are late bloomers. Um, I am uncertain, really, as to how active CU can be in NIL, because there is some confusion over the what the statute in Colorado allows, as I understand it, it allows the school, CU, to educate its players on NIL, but not to actually serve in an agency uh, function to hook them up with NIL um, providers. So that's unclear. Maybe you guys have a better understanding of that, but uh, I think CU needs to be more active in NIL, whatever its capabilities are if it's going to even attract some of the players of a similar type to last year's. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're correct on the, on the statute interpretation. I, you know, then Colorado, you know, with Rick George being on the committee and everything like that, that he certainly is aware of what the rules are and what's cut, what can and can't be done and had in place, like you say, the, the mechanism to assist players, but not actually make it happen. And that's not actually, you know, happening for CU players. So, um, you know, Nate Landman had some t-shirts and things like that, but you haven't seen a whole lot of opportunities for NIL for, for Colorado athletes, but moving on to 
finding coaches that can find either Division One AA that we don't have one AA anymore, FCS teams that have stars that want to move up or disgruntled players. So you did pick up two new coaches. There seems to be a lot of conversation about the new offensive coordinator. Mike Sanford comes to see you from after two years in Minnesota, where he's the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Um, on his resume, he's coached almost every position on offense. He's been a recruiting coordinator at a couple of different schools. He's actually head coach at Western Kentucky. He's coached under P.J. Fleck, of course, at Minnesota, Brian Kelly, Notre Dame, David Shaw. When Stanford was winning Pac-12 championships, he was with Stanford. Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, Brian Harson, who's now you know at Auburn. Chris Peterson was his head coach when he was a player at Boise State. He's known as being a good recruiter. He actually recruited Christian McCaffrey, but I think Stanford recruited Christian McCaffrey more than you know actually Mike Stanford. But Minnesota, fair to middling, um, 17th in turn, third down conversions last year, 31st in rushing, even though their top two running backs got hurt. One stat that did stand out to me in terms of Minnesota the 19 games he was the offensive coordinator, they had 16 100-yard rushing games. Um, I don't think Seuss had 16 100-yard rushers, not total yards rushing, but individuals that had over 100 yards rushing in 16 out of the 19 games. And you probably have to go back to 2016 and add up five years' worth to find CU with 16 100-yard games. On the negative, well, I'll let you guys probably bring up some of the negatives. So, Neil, let's you go first on this one. Mixed reviews at best for the new offensive coordinator. What are your first impressions? When I first learned uh, that we had this guy, I was pleased because I was going back to the Minnesota game in Boulder where they just ran over the buffs. And that was a good style of football. They ran the ball consistently and they mixed in play action passing and essentially moved the ball at will. However, when I learned that his contract had not been renewed, I wondered mm, what's wrong. So it's hard to tell right now. I think the guy has potential. I like the style of offense. I like the the big lineman that they had and the power game that they emphasized. I'm not sure how well this guy develops quarterbacks. And that's been one of the rubs on him, I think, at least at Minnesota, perhaps other places. So it's it's wait and see. Plus, the current QB coach now is in sort of a state of limbo because it's not clear who's going to coach the quarterbacks. And if it's not Langsdorf, what's going to happen to him? Um, we may, may have yet another coach, new coach on the staff to coach wide receivers. So that staff is somewhat unsettled, especially with a new O-line coach. So it's going to take some time for those guys to get on the same page. So I'm anticipating a slow start for the offense um, first half of next season. Hopefully they can synchronize it and get it going for the second half. But I'm not hopeful at this point. Okay. Well, Brad, one of the wraps is Neil is pointing out that quarterbacks that he has assumed control over, like Tanner Morgan was a wonder kid before he got there and has regressed arguably since then. 
Same thing happened with Jordan Love at Utah State, who's now, of course, you know, backing up at Green Bay, you know, the, the heir apparent Aaron to Aaron Rodgers at Green Bay. Ian Book at Notre Dame did better before he got there. So there are some, I don't know if they're red flags, but there are certainly some reasons for concern. But at the same time, he does have a pretty solid resume in terms of coaching history as a recruiter, as an offensive coordinator. What the fan base was all excited about the wide receivers coach at Pittsburgh who had you know, been an offensive coordinator at a community college, you know, so, you know, if we'd gotten that guy, it'd be like, oh, it's Darren Cheverini all over again. Somebody that's never had the job. Now we've got somebody that's been a head coach, been an offensive coordinator, been a recruiting coordinator, been at power five schools, been in the PAC 12. Seemingly the resume checks all the boxes. So why are we not excited about Mike Sanford? I mean, he checks. He is exactly the kind of guy you expect Carl Durrell to pick. <laughs> okay. Nothing we've seen from Carl Durrell says that he's going to go far afield outside the box. He wants consistency. He wants people who have been proven at this level. He is still trying to find somebody who knows the college game intimately. Sanford was going to coach, was going to be an offensive coordinator at a Power 5 school this year. There's not much doubt about that, okay? Um, and so we got it. He is going to be, you know, a leveling force after Chevarini, who appeared to be perhaps too emotional for a coordinator position. Um, he's going to be somebody who's going to have a game plan. I don't think we'll be seeing Jarek Broussard's name in the transfer portal anytime <laughs> soon. Um, those of us who kept screaming to feed Jarek, we now have the guy with the fork. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> That's the way it's going to work. He is a consistent professional who has only moved with the exception of when he didn't succeed at Western Kentucky as a head coach, who's only moved up either in terms of position or the program. Um, he remains young. He likely is the kind, based again on what we've seen, who can learn from his past errors and get better. Did I come skipping home when he got hired? No, but I thought, yeah, this is exactly who I expected. I think we're going to have quarterbacks who can manage the game, who can get it right, um, who make the right reads, and uh, then know how to turn either right or left as to where they're going to hand off. <laughs> um, so, yeah, are we going to? We're not going to run an air raid, but we were never going to run an air raid under Carl Durrell. This is going to be a balanced offense. If Carl says balance five times in a press conference, he says it fifty. Yes. Well, towards that end, Neil, you probably have to be then excited about the other hire that's taken place since we last talked, which is the offensive line coach. Kyle Devan, I'll give you his resume, age 36. He's, you know, which anyway, that's, you know, it sounds young to us, but, you know, he's been around a little bit. He comes to see you for, as being an offensive analyst um, at Michigan, where he focused on the offensive line. And these are stats that you, you drool over that Michigan had, all five of their offensive linemen get some sort of all Pac-10 honors. One first team, 
and also uh, second team All-American, two on the second team All-Big Ten, and two honorable mention All-Big Ten offensive linemen. The group as a as a whole received the Joe Moore Award, which I have to confess I'd never heard of, but is an award that is given out to the best offensive line in the country. So that certainly you know looks good on Kyle Devan's resume. He was a 38-game starter in his playing days at Oregon State as an offensive lineman. Graduate assistant, both Oregon State and USC. Went to the New Orleans Saints as an assistant offensive line coach and was uh, assistant head coach and offensive line coach, you know, in, in the MAC. And then was actually a run game coordinator and offensive line coach at Arizona for a couple of years before he went to Michigan. And he was known as a good recruiter. So he's played in, he played in his time in Pac-12 country. He's coached in Pac-12 country. He's known as a recruiter. He's known as a good offensive line coach. And everyone seems to be excited about this hire. Uh, are you equally enthused about the future of the offensive line under Kyle Devan? If he has the ability to transform CU's offensive line into even a pale imitation of what Michigan's line was this year, he will have been a great success. The, the constraint there is I'm sure Michigan had better talent to start with, and his task is going to be to try to find some guys in the portal and then to blend them in with the guys that are returning because there should be three, maybe four new starters on that line come September, and it's going to be his task of blending the old and the new and getting them to play a new style. I think he's the best hire so far that they've had. So I'm enthusiastic, but reserved. I'm hedging. Okay. Well, yeah, certainly, you know, he's just at Michigan for a year, so he didn't recruit any of those all Big Ten players, but he helped them play as all Big Ten players. So he knows what it looks like. And toward that end, you know, the the Minnesota offensive line, to go with our new offensive coordinator was one of the largest in the Big Ten. So it seems like the, the power running game is in CU's future. So the balanced attack that you're talking about, Brad, that uh, can CU get along with a heavier rush offense and slow down the game. Fans aren't seemingly excited about, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust and running the play clock down to five seconds on every play to try and shorten the game. But maybe when you're undermanned, that's the the game plan that CU has to use for at least the next couple of years. Works for Utah. I mean, as, as for a long time, that's the bottom. I mean, it worked for Stanford for a lot of years. It is currently working for Utah. I don't know that we were ever going to be able to build a team that was going to go face to face and run the same number of places USC and win the game. That's not ever going to be how it's going to look here. Um, and you know, Devan, I love he looks the part. Yeah. He, he still alert. can take his take his shirt off over his head without unbuttoning the top button. He has a lineman's build to him. He knows, I think, how to recruit the Midwest. 
My hope is that we will see a couple second and third string Big Ten guys in the transfer portal who might know Devan and who he might know. I love the fact that he is a Pac-12 guy, um, so he knows the ground. So I think these two hires, I mean, Carl Durrell might as well write on the board, we are going to run 65% of the time uh, with these two hires. That's just the way it's going to work which might keep Brendan Lewis alive, uh, which would be nice. Uh, so, um, and the play action might actually draw some attention. So, yeah, I like Devan. I think he's an up-and-comer. I think he's somebody that a lot of people were going to look at. I'm a little surprised, actually, that he's here. I would have thought he was going to have other opportunities, and I fear he will. You know, If he real builds this line, he will not be here for 20 years. That's just not how it's going to work. Right. But if he can bring in some some big uglies and and teach him how to push people around, I think he's – I agree with Neil. I think he's an excellent hire. Okay. Well, maybe, you know, if hiring away our cornerbacks coach takes away a couple of defensive backs, maybe there are some Big Ten linemen that will follow our offensive coordinator and our new offensive line coach and decide to transfer to the Pac-12 and become mainstays in our new offensive line. I wanted to finish this episode and finish this year, season number two of the See You at the Game podcast on with a little bit of upbeat, a little bit of uh, cheer. Let's talk a little bit about favorite plays, favorite players. Neil, what's, talk, what uh, stands out to you for the 2021 season? What will you remember You know, over the next nine months as we're waiting for September to roll around and give you positive Mojo, looking forward to the 2022 season. Long side. Um, favorite oh, play. None, none of the above, huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with that. I think there are several candidates, and I think the one that stood out for me that was the biggest surprise and the most fun to watch was the kickoff return because we haven't had one of those in forever. And it was such a pleasant surprise, and it came out of nowhere from done by a kid that hadn't played a lot. And on that run, he demonstrated balance and mobility and agility and speed. And so I'm kind of looking forward to see what he can do either as a DB or as a returner next year. Favorite player, um, I think I'm going to have to be consistent with what I said in an earlier podcast, which is, our quarterback, who throughout the year took heat from the press and from the fan base and just kept his poise and didn't react. And he got hammered every Saturday on the field and just keep what just kept coming back and trying. And he actually achieved some nice things. And he was fits and starts in terms of progress, but overall at the end of the year, he turned out to be a better quarterback than he was at the beginning. And I think at this stage of the program, that's all we can ask. And I, I like him as a favorite because of the heart and the class that he showed throughout the year. Very good. Well, and you're talking about Nico Reed uh, with the kick return and it was, he was, First 100-yard kickoff return since Marcus Mosley in 2012, surprisingly enough, also against Utah. And what I remember, you know, the week before, 
Nico Reed was finally getting in some playing time because of injuries to defensive backs. And I remember in the Carl Durrell press conference in the week leading up to it, he said, this kid just exudes confidence. He's like, get me back there. Let me return kicks. Let me in the game. I'll do something. And well, he certainly delivered. Wasn't the first kick return. There was also a Nelson Spruce kickoff return for a touchdown, but that was on a, an onside kick um, that went awry. So his kickoff return was only like 45 yards or something like that. But uh, the last full kickoff return goes all the way back to 2012. So, yes, it has been a while since uh, CU got to see uh, it, one of its players return a kickoff. Brad, favorite play, favorite players? What uh, what stands out to you for the 2021 season? And first of all, I would have, if I was not looked like copying, I agree with Neil, everything Neil said about Brendan Lewis. His touchdown run against Washington was as gutsy a play as we saw all year. But I'll be consistent as well. I said at the beginning of the season that Carson Wells had the capacity to be an all Pac-12 player. He did not fully live up to that. And he struggled more than I would have hoped once Landman went down. But his 50-yard interception against Arizona, sure, it's Arizona. But it was still a key play in that in making that win. And in I think in some ways turning the season a little bit. As the season went on, Wells grew into his abilities. I think he played much better. I think he probably played himself into a chance to play on Sundays. Um, and it is nice to watch. Somebody who was overshadowed a bit grow into that. Favorite player, I think all of us will miss everything that made Nate Landman a special guy. Um, I'm sorry his last two seasons were shortened by injury. I'm sorry he didn't get to show everything he was. But there will come a time when, as we get even older and nostalgic even more, we'll say, you remember those games Landman had? Remember yeah. some of those tackles where he shouldn't have even been in the area and he knocked him down. And so, you know, I wish he could have gone out on a higher note, but let's remember everything that he brought to see you for all his time here. Yeah. I mean, he was on the pace, you know, to be the first player in CU history to lead the team in tackles all four years. Probably wouldn't have caught Barry Remington's all time tackle. Uh, numbers, but probably would have finished second all time uh, in CU history and tackles. Yeah, I agree with you know, talking about Carson Wells' interception being kind of a turning point. If you think back to the Arizona game, it you know it turned out to be a route in a sense, but it was six nothing in the third quarter before Trevor Woods blocked the punt, returned it for a touchdown, and what literally three plays later, Carson Wells picked off the inter you know the interception return for a touchdown. So it went from six to nothing to 20 to nothing in like one minute of game clock. So certainly a good play that, you know, part of it is, you know, the idea that we're talking about kickoff returns, interception returns, block punt returns, not talking too much about exciting offensive plays. You know, the fact that first kickoff return since 2012, first interception return since 2018, first block punt return since 2004. And I remember that one because that was Lawrence Vickers against Washington State in a game that was played in Seattle and actually went to that game. That was the makeup game for the September 11th game that got canceled. Um, let's talk a little bit maybe about your favorite game. 
not too much to choose from because probably going to exclude Northern Colorado. So that leaves three victories, Arizona, Oregon state and Washington. So I'll let you guys pick which ones you like, and I'll take the, I'll take the third one out of the, the three, Neil, what would be your, your favorite memory or favorite game of the season? Well, as the more senior guest, I'll defer to Brad because I got to go first last time. Okay. And I don't want to hog the, the, the spotlight here, Brad. Um, Oregon State. I mean, as, as hard as it was, you know, I was sitting there next to Stewart in the stadium when that field goal went through at the end of regulation. That really was a game where some of what might be for this team really showed up. There were times earlier in the season when we wondered about how much grit this team had. And to come back and take the lead and give up the lead and then win in overtime, yeah. Was it bad for my increasingly older heart? Yes. Um, <laughs> But did it show things that I think demonstrate that this team can not only get better, but can be good? I think that's the game that I'll remember. Okay. Neil, I'd like to agree that that was the best game, favorite game, or do you want to choose something else? Brad, I had a feeling that was going to be your game. <laughs> um, and it's mine, too, for many of the reasons that you cite. And I won't repeat them, but I'll add that it was sort of a, a cleansing, if you will, of the Oregon State game here a couple of years back where CU was leading, what, 30 to three, a few minutes into the third quarter and managed to lose it. So in that sense, it sort of balanced um, the karma. It, it was it was satisfying in so many ways. And the most satisfying way was the grit the team showed and just giving it their all, all through the game and finally getting through in a pressure situation. That was a big growth spurt for the team, I think. Yeah. Well, I hate to, you know, pile on, but that, yeah, I think the Oregon State was probably the game I'll remember the most. And partly because of what Brad had to endure with me watching the, the final minutes and the overtimes. He also got to see me, you know, in complete despair after the Minnesota game when we were just completely embarrassed, annihilated, just devastating how bad that game was. Less than 100 yards of offense, 30 to nothing. For those that aren't familiar, you know, what I do after the game, I've, I, you know, we go back to the cars. I get on the website as quickly as I can, put up a poll as quickly as I can after the game and put up at least the ESPN story or something where people could post comments before I get a chance to do the write-up. And it was a hot day, the Minnesota game. It was like 90 degrees or something. I think it was only like 79 officially, but sitting in the East stands with the reflection, it was, it was hot. We were dehydrated. And I went off to, behind the elementary school where we were parking and started to type up stuff. And Brad sat in the air-conditioned car. And, you know, after one point, he sent me a text. He's like, are you okay? You know, like I'd gone and jumped off some bridge somewhere because I was so despondent after that game. And there was some of that at the Oregon State game when we gave up that 60-yard 
field goal at the end to send the game into overtime. That was just like, oh, my God, you cannot lose to Oregon State this way. Please, you cannot lose to Oregon State this way. And then somehow we were able to score a touchdown in the first overtime. Then they missed a field goal, and CU kicked the field goal. It was just such a, a relief to have that victory. Like you guys were mentioning, it was the, probably the best game of the year for the team. And to get rewarded for that uh, was certainly memorable for the 2021 season. I'll just finish it with um, a personal note about the Northern Colorado game, which otherwise was not very memorable. So you ended up winning semi-handily, was sloppy at the beginning, wasn't particularly effective throughout the game, but never really had the game in doubt. But for me, that was the weekend I got to bring my entire family to Boulder. So all seven grandkids, three kids, three spouses. Of course, my spouse were all there and got to take pictures at the Saturday morning after the game up at the Champion Center up on the terrace and got some good pictures to put in the Christmas letter, if nothing else, um, with everybody wearing CU gear, even my Oregon son-in-law, University of Oregon grad son-in-law that uh, was wearing an an Oregon t-shirt underneath. But uh, at least for a day, he was wearing a CU shirt. Um, So that'll always be memorable for me. And it's been a memorable year for the See You at the Game podcast. Welcome, Neil, to the podcast to join us here on season two. And uh, we're going to start season three here in a couple of weeks. We'll probably have more coaches to talk about, talk about the wrap up for the bowl season and maybe start looking at the 2022 schedule and talk about what's going to be coming up for spring practices. So those that have been faithful listeners to the uh, See What the Game podcast, thank you for enduring the season with us. And uh, we look forward to uh, season three starting in mid-January. So Brad, Neil, uh, any words of wisdom before we, we sign off for the 2021 year? This is what we do. This is what we've done for so long. And the trials and the tribulations are part of what makes it interesting. Um, I'd rather be interested as we were talking about a bowl game, but we'll keep doing this. And hopefully the basketball team will play a game again. We can at least read about that. Yeah, well, we can talk a little bit about that during podcasts as well as we get into the the meat of the Pac-12 season. So, Neil, you get the last word. What what words of wisdom do you have for us from uh, downtown Denver? Well, as a proud proud alum uh, and a off-again-on-again lifetime fan, my first experience (laughs) was when I was eight years old. There's something about going to buff games, win or lose, that is special. And hopefully we can continue to at least enjoy those games, and hopefully the team will become competitive over the next season or two so that we can actually enjoy the performance. But just to be an alum of CU and be part of uh, the phone on Saturdays, well worth it. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Amen to that. We'll not going anywhere. You know, it is what it is. You know, we're buffs for life and wish you guys happy new year and uh, stay safe. And we will talk again soon. Go buffs. Go buffs. A sincere thank you for listening. This recording, 
the 29th podcast of the year, marks the final episode of our second season. We look forward to your comments and suggestions as to how to continue to improve our product. It hasn't been easy to be a Buff fan for the past decade and a half, and your being a part of this podcast is clear evidence of your loyalty and interest. And we hope that we are bringing you solid information and a good perspective on CU Athletics. I hope 2022 brings you and yours health and joy. We will be back in just a few weeks to talk more about your buffs. Until then, be well, stay safe, and go buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.